Well, welcome to City Life. It's good to be back. Uh, it's just good to be back here worshiping with you. This is home. This feels comfortable. Worshiping with you, my church family. Uh, what was it? Two weekends ago, I wasn't here at all. I was in uh, that village that we just showed, La Guasra, in the Dominican Republic with about nine other people. And we were down there just ministering, and uh, I wasn't here, and I missed this. And then uh, last weekend, none of us were in here because we were all outside, right, hosting hundreds of people for festivities, fun, and fellowship. Last weekend for Oktoberfest, like Nate said, thank you. Um, If you hosted a trunk, if you served, you volunteered, you played a big part in us being able to bless all those people and hopefully uh, help them raise an awareness of not only our church, but Faith Lutheran that's here as well. Um, But that was awesome. But it is good to be back. But I would say as good as it is to be back these past two weeks for me, and hopefully it can be a reminder for you, I know it reminded me that the church doesn't just exist for us in these four walls. The church is an organization that exists for the people outside of it. It's one of those rare organizations that basically exists for the non-members because the church isn't called to be a clique or a club. It's called to be a vehicle that God uses to reach the world, right? Crickets. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I just preached at Zion Community on Thursday night. I got a lot of call and response there, so y'all have some work to do. Um, but uh, that might be an uh, unideal statement for two weeks before a membership class that the church doesn't exist for its members. But we'll, we'll work that idea out later as, as we preach and we work through the word. But uh, it's true. The church is a vehicle that God wants to use. We see it being used throughout the New Testament. You read through the book of Acts where Paul is just this prolific church planner, planning church after church. And then we get these epistles all throughout our New Testament. That's just a fancy word for letters that he was writing to these churches from most of the New Testament after the Gospels. And I want to turn tonight just to introduce our thoughts tonight to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 from the very beginning, verse 1 to verse 7. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 7. I'll put most of it up here on the screen. But if you got uh, eyes that can't read that, you might want to pull your Bible out. <laughs> but it says, this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And we're writing to the church in Thessalonica, that you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God the Father about you, We think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord, and as a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece, throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Before I go any further, I just want to pray tonight. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that even in that moment of worship and in that time of worship, we were singing your word to you. God, that we ask that as we open your word tonight and we dig through what it says and its implications for us, God, we just pray that as it says in Scripture, your word would not return void. God, that it would deposit something in our hearts. It would shift something in our minds. God, we open our hearts to you, and we say move, direct, inspire, encourage, challenge, convict, whatever it is we need tonight. God, I pray that you would put a deposit of us, a deposit of that in our spirits. 
so that we can leave this place following you closer and glorifying you better. And everybody said, in the name of Jesus, amen. So if you're uh, here for the first time, you've been coming here for a couple months, or, or you're relatively new to the church, there's three things that we often hit on here at City Life. We celebrate all of Scripture. We celebrate a lot of the traditions and the teachings and applications. But you'll see us pointing to three things again and again and again. And those three things are the goodness of God, the potential of people, and the centrality of the church. And I want to work towards that third one, and that's where we're going to park it. But to get there, I want to work through the first two. So there's the goodness of God, God's goodness. If you've come here for any amount of time, you would have heard somebody quote Psalm 27, 13, where it says, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Just this idea that God wants to give us glimpses of his goodness even here on earth. And then I loved it as well in 2 Corinthians 5, 5. This is the message version. It says, the spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead in heaven. God wants to give us glimpses of his goodness in this life. God wants to give us tastes of his goodness in this life. Because if we're honest, our palate on this planet is not one that's always perfect health, wholeness, and heaven on earth, right? We live in a fallen world that's broken by sin. But God, he wants us to have tastes of heaven here on earth. I mean, if we're honest, earth is not heaven. Earth is broken by sin. Earth is broken by the way we use our free will to sin. If you read Psalm 27 in its entirety where David writes verse 13, you realize he was in a rough situation. I'm talking a mess, a mess where a king was trying to kill him. He was hiding out in caves. And yet and still in that time, he could say, I haven't lost heart because I believe I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David trusted in this. We too can trust in this. We see the, the church in Thessalonians, they trusted in this. Paul speaks in that passage we just read of the suffering and persecution they experienced. And this wasn't persecution they experienced in spite of their faith. It was persecution they experienced because of their faith. It was another level of persecution we often don't experience in this culture. Yet I love that the Amplified Version, it speaks of this joy in verse 6 that the Holy Spirit provides. The passage we just read speaks in verse 1 of the grace and peace that God gave the people of this church in Thessalonica. And in the Amplified Version, it talks about an inner calm and spiritual well-being from God. See, when the world doesn't provide your joy, but your joy is rooted in and found in something that transcends this world, then the things of this world and the circumstances in this world, it can't take that joy. When your peace is, isn't rooted in circumstance, but it's rooted in the God who is present in every circumstance, then the world can't steal your peace. I uh, used to listen to an artist. His name was Derek Webb. He's made a lot of music since, but I used to listen to him a lot. And he had an acoustic version of an old song. And the song, I used to listen to it a lot when Steph and I were dating, when we were first married. And uh, the name of the song is I Hate Everything But You. I hate everything, and then in parentheses, but you. The chorus is, it's been one of those kind of days where I hate everything, I hate everything, but you. Ever had a day where you're coming home from work, and you kind of feel like, I hate everything. Going home from class, where you're just like, this was a wreck. I feel like I bombed everything that, every task that was given to me, or maybe it feels like somebody attacked you, bombed your work, whatever it may be. But you come home to a friend, 
to your spouse and embrace. Maybe you embrace your dog. I mean, some of y'all are, some of y'all are cat people, I know, because I see your Facebook. Some of y'all are dog people, right, where you come home and just, it lifts you up. There's a peace, there's a joy that's found in that embrace. I mean, Raj, two years old, can't say but like two words. I can't communicate with him on many levels. I couldn't tell him what my day was like, and if I told him, he wouldn't understand. And if he understood, he couldn't solve my problems. But when I come home from a long day, a rough day, whatever kind of day, and I come in the door and he walks up and wants me to pick him up, like, that's everything. That's everything. There's peace in that. There's joy that's restored. I'm like, the world is fine because of this young boy. And again, he's two. He can't understand my problems or solve my problems. You, you take that another step further, again, to like puppies and cats. Like we find peace in their presence. It's, it's therapeutic. How much more then in the midst of a rough time, in the midst of persecution, in, in this passage here or in the midst of a bad day, should we be able to find peace and joy in the presence of God? The God to where it says in Jeremiah, nothing is too hard for him. The God who understands everything we walk through and can sympathize because of what Jesus did living in the flesh. He can not only understand but have compassion and sympathize with us. How much more should we find peace in God's presence, joy in God's presence? But let me be clear. Sometimes I go through trials because I'm a fool. Right? Sometimes I go through trials because I do foolish things and it's merely the consequences from decisions that I've made. And other times I go through trials, again, because we just live in a broken world that's broken by sin and, and things happen. But that doesn't mean that God is absent in those moments. You know, I, I've, I've lived fully convinced that sometimes it isn't the absence of God that allows my trials. But sometimes it's, it's his goodness. In order that I would see that he alone is where I find my abundance of joy, peace, hope, and satisfaction. Not in my circumstances, not in what my comfort level is that day, and it helps me throw away this idea that my joy and peace is found in anything other than God. I don't necessarily end up at this chorus, I hate everything but you, but I end up at this chorus, I don't need anything but you. It's the chorus we find Asaph right in Psalm 73. He says in Psalm 73 verses 25 and 26, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Steph basically preached this at the end of worship about the goodness of God and being aware of it. You know, heaven isn't defined as a place with no pain and no problems. That's a nice side effect of God's perfect reign in heaven. But heaven is defined as God being present, him having total reign. We get a taste of that in this life, his presence with us, even amidst the trials, the problems, and the bad days. That's why we don't lose hope. That's why we don't lose the peace that the Holy Spirit brings and the joy that God the Father brings. It's because Jesus promised, no matter what we're going through now, to prepare a place for us on the other side. And God the Father promises in Scripture that no matter what we go through, he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. And that presence of God with us is his goodness. That's all the favor I need. What Jesus did on the cross, Jesus being with me, that's what I need in life. It's the goodness of God. And secondly, we talk about the, the potential of people often here at City Life. Now, let's be clear. Again, people are broken by sin, yet nobody is outside of the grace of God. 
Nobody we pass is so far gone that God can't reach them. Because of God's power, there's potential, not only for grace to cover them, but once we step into the grace of God, we invite God into our hearts, we can be transformed. You read verses 6 through 7 that we just read, and it says, So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of severe suffering it brought you. Again, it says, in this way, you imitated both us and the Lord, and as a result, you have become an example to all the believers. We see in this passage that the church that Paul is writing to, that they had gone from imitators of the apostles and the Lord to graduating to where they were an example for others to imitate. You know, this should be one of our goals as believers that at some point in our walk with God, we could say like Paul did, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, right? I follow Christ. I follow his word and I live obedient to his word. And we should get to a point in our maturity where we can say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. It should be our aim to have the testimony of Paul. But if we're going to follow Christ like Paul followed Christ, we can't forget, we can't forget that Paul followed Christ amidst community. You know, so often we take the Bible and we read it and we make it about me, myself, and I. It's just the humanistic thing to do. Like you think of Jeremiah 29, 11, where the prophet Jeremiah writes, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, how often do we apply that verse to ourselves? It's not a bad thing, but we do it often. I've seen somebody apply it in a tattoo on their rib cage, right, that God has a plan and a purpose for them. And, and how often do we apply that to another individual, somebody who's praying for what's God's plan for my life? What's God's purpose for my life? And we'd say, well, he has a plan and a purpose for you, not to hurt you, not to harm you, give you hope and a future. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But when we look at the scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, that's not a me. That's a we. That word in the Hebrew speaks to a group of people. It's a plural pronoun. It's speaking to individuals in community, worshiping God together and longing and hoping for future redemption. I think sometimes we desperately cry out to God for the plans he has for us and the purposes he has for our lives. And I think sometimes we miss it because we forget that it's bigger than us. So often we want God to isolate his promises and his callings and do for us as individuals what he will only do for us as a people. We want him to take his promises and apply them to us as individuals what he will only do for us as a people. Now I'm I'm not talking down having a life verse, clinging to verses of Scripture for very specific seasons in your life. I'm not talking down uh, speaking the Word of God into other people's lives and their situations, but we can't ditch the Bible's proper perspective. Because when we make the Bible about me, myself, and I, we corrupt the narrative of Scripture. Scripture is first and foremost not about me, but it's about a he. It's about Jesus Christ. Every passage you read in Scripture from the fall of man in Genesis and the curse and the promises of God, they're pointing forward to Jesus. All the Old Testament, then in the Gospels, is pointing to Jesus present, Emmanuel with us, and then the rest of the Bible points back to Jesus. All of Scripture is about him, first and foremost. Secondly, we see it's about a we. It's about God's people, the church, his bride. And yes, again, there are verses that we apply to me in specific situations. But before all of that, there's a he and there's a we. And again, we're people loaded with potential. Like the church in Thessalonians, may we graduate from, from imitating others, leaders, and the Lord and Jesus Christ. May we graduate to a point where people can imitate and follow us. 
May we graduate to a point where we're not just spoon-fed truth, but we know truth. We read truth. We can teach truth, and we can disciple people. But may we not forget that to tap into our potential as a people, it won't be as individuals. It will be as a community. We were created in the Imago Dei. Now, that's just fancy Latin for we were created in the image of God. When we look at the image of God, God is triune. He's three in one. We could spend the rest of the year trying to flesh that out in sermon after sermon. We might not fully understand it. It's a matter of faith. But just even looking at the Imago Dei, the image of God and the community within that, we realize that we too are created, if we're created in that image, for community and fellowship. We look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, that we just read. It says, this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It says, we are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we should take note of in this moment is this was a letter written by people, for people, belonging to multiple members of the Trinity. Now, Paul could assign this, hey, this is Paul, but he says, hey, this is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. A community written to a community of believers. Sure, God could tap into your potential if it was just you and you alone. If you were trapped on a desert island, right, in the middle of nowhere with the word of God and you worship God from Scripture, he can do a work in you, right? If, if you were on an island, he could do that work, but he doesn't call us to that. And the work that he could do in us alone pales in comparison to what he can do to you when you tap into the family of faith he's provided and the community within it. You know, if we took the time to seriously look at ourselves and our lives, some of us are committed or we drift toward this where we're committed only to ourselves, our transformation, our sanctification, our family, our home, our growth. Again, those aren't bad things. And God won't abandon you because of that. But you need to hear tonight that some of the promises of God are waiting for you to step into the community of God. Some of the callings of God that he wants to awaken in your life are waiting for you to plug into the community of God. And let me define community. Let me not leave it vague. The church isn't called to just sit together on the weekends. It's called to walk together in everything God calls it to. You know, if we simply attend a service on the weekend and never go any deeper, never seek any involvement in anything further, never invest in relationship, never put down roots, then biblically we aren't part of a church. We're part of a crowd. We're not being the church. We're checking a box. Our triune God that we're created in the image of, it calls us to community and fellowship. Who in your life is your Paul, Silas, and Timothy? Who in your life is your Martha, Mary, or Susanna? Who's your example? Who's looking to you for an example? And I named those apostles, and I want to point to a creed written in their namesake. Uh, it's known as the Apostles' Creed. It's an early, crafted statement of Christian belief. And if you're from a liturgical background, you're familiar. If you're not from a liturgical background, you might be like, we're allowed to do this? Like, <laughs> don't worry. Don't be wigged out. Creeds aren't incantations. They're not, they're not even prayers. They're statements of the authority of Scripture, things we believe in. And creeds historically have been used to correct error, shape spiritual transformation. But the Apostles' Creed, I'm going to read it briefly. It's a beautiful passage. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. If you ever went to a Catholic high school, you just have flashbacks. Some of you just had Rich Mullins stuck in your head. I just lost others of you with that reference. But uh, <laughs> I want to look at the phrase in here, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And I want to point to, again, the centrality of the church. And maybe some of you, as I read that, as I just said that, you think, wait, Catholic? <laughs> Isn't that what the whole Reformation was about, where we just celebrated the 500-year anniversary of? Well, here, Catholic isn't speaking to Roman Catholic. It's speaking to Catholic, the word that means universal. Not a cathedral, not a building with a gathering inside four walls, but every believer everywhere always. I love that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the, the verse right after what we uh, closed with, in verse 8, it says, The word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. The fact of the matter is we're part of a bigger family than we can fathom. This was so powerful about this trip we just took to La Guasara, right? This small village, 100, couple hundred people maybe, these families. Yeah, they live in material poverty, and we're trying to get them self-sustaining, but they have riches that we don't when it comes to community. Kids looking out for each other, families looking out for each other. Everybody knows everybody, right? They have, rich, they have a rich, young faith. Come on, they can, they can point to Scripture. They, they talk about Jesus. And I, I swear, we leave. That group that goes, we leave with more deposited in us than we deposit there. We build some latrines. We do VBS. We pray for people. We visit homes, but we leave more enriched, than I swear, than they are. And when we get there, they, they throw a big party. And when we leave, they throw a big party. And this year, they, they, they took a giant extension cord and plugged it into one of their only sources of power, and they, they brought out a, a band. Like this kind of band. Up on this hill, surrounded by mountains, there was a keyboard player. There was like an eight-year-old drummer. I don't know how old he was, maybe 12, like just killing it on the drums. But what was powerful for me is they, they did all these songs in Spanish. We didn't know what they were saying, right? But then they finally sang a song we're all familiar with, How Great Is Our God. And they were singing it in Spanish. We were singing it in English. And it was just this powerful remembrance that the church is so much bigger than just here, right now. The church is global, and heaven is going to have people singing in all different languages but the same kind of praises. How great is our God? There are members of our family in Christ that we're not going to meet until after we meet God the Father. You know, heaven is going to be like the biggest family reunion of all time, and you're not going to know most of the people there, but you're going to get to know them. Revelation 7, 9 says, after this, this is a vision that, that John has of heaven. He says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count. From every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And it's because, I believe it's because God foresaw this diversity in heaven that he calls his church in the beginning of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I love that when you look at that, that short list, the smallest unit that the church is called to reach is not a home, it's not a small group of people, it's not a school or a neighborhood or a workplace. The smallest unit that the church is called to reach is a city. 
Again, you look at the letters of the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Corinthians, Thessalonians. They're written to churches in cities. And it's not the names of people. It's not the names of churches. It's the names of the cities. And I love in the passage we read tonight in the NIV, it says the church of the Thessalonians. The church belonging to the city and the people surrounding it. We could be called the church of Suffolk and Carrollton and Smithfield and Chesapeake. We've got so many borders that converge right here. <laughs> but the church isn't here for me and you. Some of us need to shift our perspective because that will increase your vision for what we're called to as a church. Our role as a church. We get it twisted and often think that the church is here for the people who already believe. We think that the church is here for its members. We think it's here for us. But I heard a great quote from Erwin McManus, a pastor out in California. He simply said this. He said, the church doesn't exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. The church doesn't exist for us. We are the church. We exist for the world. If you can fully embrace that perspective, that will change everything. That'll change the way you walk out of a church service, realizing that you didn't just check a box, you just started something. That, that, that word you received, that transformation you received is something you carry through the week to reach your city and your region. That equipping, that transformation that God did in you, that was to equip you for the call he has for you Sunday through Friday, because we do church on Saturday, right? That equipping is for the work that carries throughout the week. It's why we do outreaches. It's why we try to minister to schools, like through Micah's backpack. It's why we try to connect with people outside these walls through things like Oktoberfest. Because the church exists for the people that are outside of it, those that aren't even members yet. Is there a transformation in every one of our hearts? Yes. Is there beautiful worship that we offer up to God and, and encountering him as we draw near to him and he draws near to us? Yes. There's equipping. There's life change. And it's beautiful and it's powerful. But that's not the end game. The end game of the church is to reach our region. The city we exist in, it's our mission field. The other churches in our community, it's not competition, they're co-laborers. I loved going to Zion community and preaching and meeting these people that are trying to reach the same communities in the same way for Jesus Christ. You know, celebrating where God has planted you is good. I love city life. I've been here for 12 years. I met Christ at the church that planted city life. I've grown up in this church. I love this church. But sometimes we can get this weird swagger about our church where everybody else is competition. No, we at City Life, we're far from perfect. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> we don't exist to pat ourselves on the back. We exist for this city, this region. We exist for the work that it will take to reach it. But we won't have that reach we're called to as the Catholic church, as the church universal, and have that kind of reach in the world if we don't couple that with the communion of saints. See, God calls us, in a way he calls us to both expand the church and he calls us to shrink the church because he calls us to the church universal, and yet he also calls us to intimate communion. He calls us to this holy Catholic church, the church universal, but also the communion of saints. And maybe you, like me, have had conversations with people where they say, yeah, I'm a part of the church. You know they don't go anywhere attend anywhere, go anywhere on the weekends or fellowship with other believers. But what they're speaking to is, I'm a part of this church universal. I'm a part of this church. Uh, I'm a believer. I follow Christ. But God doesn't just call us to the church universal. He calls us to this communion of saints, this 
this word in the New Testament, the church, it's used in a couple different ways, but one way it's used again and again in the Greek, it speaks to this visible, local body of believers that we're called to. You know, the first thing that Steph and I did as a married couple was communion. Some of you guys thought that was going to communion, right? Fred led us in our vows and then immediately led us into a moment of worship and communion. And it was beautiful. The first thing we did as a couple. And I point to that wedding moment because the church is called the bride of Christ. And there's a communion within it. There's a covenant commitment and there's a committed communion of saints within the church. But the raw reality is so many people that attend church are simply dating the church. (laughs) They have an interest, but they don't invest. Like somebody who dates somebody with no intention of marriage. They might feed their curiosity and their cravings, but they never commit to community. They're dating the church. Maybe you're familiar with the the iceberg principle. It's just this principle in life where we see the 10%, but we don't see the 90% underneath. We see the success of an athlete, but 90% of him getting there was the sacrifice we don't see, the grind, the waking up early, the failures, and the perseverance that has to follow that. In the church, you might see behavior of folks, but if you don't go deep with them, you miss the 90%, the life experiences, the values, the beliefs, the priorities that shape that behavior. When you just date the church, you never go deep with people. You kind of just skim around on a jet ski and see the top of icebergs. You see a lot of the surface, and you might know 100 different people at church, but know nobody personally. Nobody knows me personally. We might know everyone, we might be known by everyone, and yet we don't know anyone, and we aren't known by anyone. It's kind of just this this Facebook effect where we've got, I've got thousands of friends, but do I really have thousands of friends, right? Do I really know thousands of people? No. Paul spoke of the people in this letter of Thessalonians. He spoke of their faithful work, their loving deeds, and their enduring hope. He knew about them because he had done life with them when he planted the church. And he'd go on in his letter, and twice in his letter of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, he says, encourage one another. And you look throughout the entirety of the epistles, and again, the epistles are these letters written to the churches in the entirety of the New Testament. You'll see 59 one another's in Scripture. Nearly 60 commands to be active in our relationship with somebody other than ourselves. You know, sitting in pews in rows on the weekend, it's hard to do all the one another's we're called to in Scripture. Again, this is important. This equips us to do those things, and it challenges us to do them, but we're called to something beyond this. You look at the list of one another's in Scripture. I'm not going to read all 59, but love one another. Be at peace with one another. Serve one another in love. Forgive one another. Carry each other's burdens. Offer hospitality to one another. Greet one another. Honor one another. The church is the place where we commit to working out these one another's in community. You can't one another in a mirror. (laughs) You can't one another yourself. To do these one another's, it takes another person. You can't just attend life, or excuse me, attend church on the weekend, sit in on a sermon, and go home and do you, and fulfill all of these one another's in the fullness of what God has for the community of the church. And hear me, I'm not telling you to, get coffee, go to dinner, and do life group with every person in this sanctuary right now. (laughs) I'm not saying that. You see in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus had some 500 followers that he appeared to, spent time with. You see in Luke 10, there was a group of 72 disciples that he did life with and he sent out. But then you work your way. It's like concentric circles. Then there was the 12. 
disciples that he poured his life into for his years of ministry. But then even during especially intimate moments of pain or rejoicing, there were just three that he did life with closely. We see that as Jesus was coming to save the entire world, he was also focused on communion with a few. This is why we do life groups. This is why we have a men's ministry. This is why we have the Ben there's that Dean leads. This is why we have different groups. This is why we go to Devoted, so that we can come together as smaller groups outside of Saturday and have meaningful, rooted, and rich relationships. This is what Jesus calls us to. Even Jesus modeled this for us. I suppose Jesus, right, could have bilocated, trilocated, quadlocated. I don't know the prefixes beyond that, but he didn't. And I believe it's because he wanted to model for us how to make community and fellowship and relationship a priority when you have the restraints of time and other priorities. Jesus was bound as a human by time and the limits within it, but he showed that close relationship is a priority. So my question for you tonight, your take home would be, are you prioritizing and making trade-offs? Because it takes trade-offs so that you can prioritize deep, meaningful, gospel-centered relationships. It's pivotal. It should be priority. Because, again, some of the promises that, that, that we're waiting to unlock, some of the callings that we're waiting to unlock from God, they're waiting for us to step into the community of God. And there's some recalibration, some resolving, some rearranging to be done by many of us to make it a priority. And introspection is good, but let me just ask you, don't make your pursuit of God a priority on a list of priorities. Don't try to make him first on a list. Because when we make a list of priorities, those things become compartmentalized. We got this priority here, this priority here, this priority here, and we make Jesus first on a list. But God's called to be centered over everything, center of all our pursuits. Whatever's at the center of your life, whatever's your chief focus, that will be your first priority. Whatever sits on the throne of your heart will ultimately be your first priority. Let that be God. But have a perspective that's not, well, Jesus and then my family, but Jesus in my family. Not Jesus and then my work, but Jesus in my work. Not Jesus and then my classmates, but Jesus in my relationship with my classmates. You'll always struggle in these things until Christ is at the center of your life. But when Christ is at the center of your life, his bride, the church, will be at the center of your priorities. You know, if I could have the worship team come up and just begin playing uh, another thing kind of my thing that I hit on often when talking about community is, is, is this image of redwood trees. And we talk all the time about getting rooted and get rooted and put down roots. And God wants to see fruit in your life if you'll put down roots. And what's powerful about these trees is, is the commingling of these trees. They're a football field tall. And uh, they've, some of them have been on earth since Jesus walked the earth. It's crazy. They've withstood storm after storm. They've withstood all these elements, and they're still standing, and they're still thriving. They're still living. And you would think, man, if a tree can last that long and grow that tall, it must have some really deep roots. But what's powerful about redwood trees is their roots are, again, they're as tall as a football field. Most of the roots don't go any deeper than a basketball hoop. Most of the roots don't go any deeper than 10 feet. But if you look at the roots of a redwood tree, they spread out over acres and as they grow, those roots become fused with the roots of other redwood trees to where these trees are literally, through all these storms, holding each other down. It's this beautiful picture for the church because we're not called to put down roots on this planet, in this earth. We're just passing through. We're aliens here. Our home is in heaven. But we are called to put out roots to those people that God has placed around us, the community of believers and the family of faith, to where we are doing these 59 one another's 
and holding each other down. But then I was watching, uh, I love nature documentaries, confession. I watched them with Raj, and we were watching one about Northeast India. And in Northeast India, there are these crazy uh, this is a crazy climate. It is the wettest place on the planet. It gets more rain than anywhere else on the planet. So the rivers can become so overflowing and swelled up that it becomes impossible to cross. So people become isolated, they become disconnected, and, and people are left stranded. So they would build bamboo bridges. But with all this rain they were getting, all these storms, they just keep breaking, deteriorating, falling apart. And until about, about 180 years ago, some village elders came together and they thought, I don't even know how they came to this thought, we're going to take roots of trees and guide them out until roots of trees on each side would connect and then form a bridge. It's crazy. It would take 15 to 20 years. But these, there are bridges that are still there because you think about it, these are bridges that get stronger with time. These bridges don't need maintenance because as these trees grow, these bridges are only getting stronger. You know, if we want to reach out to the disconnected, the undevoted, the, the spiritual orphans in this region. Yes, each one of us should be uh, taking up our cross, taking up our calling in the Great Commission, but to really have an impact, it's gonna be when we reach out and together, put together roots, and then begin to reach out and be a bridge to the community. You know, there are, again, our, our promises, callings, destiny on every life that's in here. But there's never gonna be a calling of God on your life that doesn't intersect with the body of Christ and other believers because it's through that that we walk out all these one another's we see in scripture. It's how we go out and operate in our callings, but it's also how others come in. How will folks know that we're Jesus's disciples? Jesus said it's by our love for one another. It's another one another. And there's many love one another's throughout the New Testament. That's something we can't do on our own. All on these for one another's, if we're walking them out, we're keeping our focus not just inclusive and on these four walls, but what can we do in our region? How can we help people? How can we connect and reconcile, not just men to God, but men one to another? When we do it together, that's when we're going to have an impact. When we put down roots together, and again, it takes 15 to 20 years for these bridges to come together. It's crazy. But when you commit yourself like that to get rooted, you can be that bridge that the God uses, the Holy Spirit uses the impact. I love verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 1. It says, the word of the Lord is ringing out from you. In the amplified version, it just digs into the Greek. It says, the word of the Lord is ringing out from you like thunder. And man, that's my prayer for this church. That the gospel, the good news, the goodness of God, the potential of people, the centrality of the church, the message that God has given us as a cross, as a church, excuse me, would ring out and resound like thunder. That's going to take God inside of us. It's going to take him being at the center of our being and us making the church the center of our life. So as we stand up, we're going to go back into worship. We're going to sing Holy Spirit. We're going to sing, God, make me more aware of your presence. Come on, may God prompt us tonight to realize that as a church, we go out from here and we should be aware of his presence, be aware of his calling, be aware of those people we pass that he's calling us to reach. But maybe you're here tonight and you would say, I've, I've, I hear all this about making church a priority, all that jazz. I've never made God a priority. I've never said, God, I want you to be at the center of, of my life. I've never let him 
sit on the throne of my heart. I've never said, God, I want to follow your word, your promises, your commands. Then tonight, again, I would love to pray for you as we go back into worship. I'll be right here. The Hiltzes are in the back as well if you need prayer. But if you need prayer for anything, you've been challenged, convicted, pricked in any way. Come on, I believe the Holy Spirit could take any sentence, any verse from this message and apply it in a hundred different ways. If you need prayer, the Hiltzes are back there. I'll be up here. But God, I pray that the word of the Lord would ring out from this church, your church in this region, your church on the peninsula, the two campuses of this church, Zion Community Church, God, Nansman River Baptist right next door, Lord God, but that your word, your goodness, your gospel, the good news would ring out like thunder. God, lightning could strike at Nate's house 20 minutes from my house, and I'd still hear it. God, I pray that we would have a reach. God, where the smallest reach we have, just as you said, be my witnesses to Jerusalem, the smallest reach is at least our city. God, I pray that as we go back to our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our communities, God, we one, we wouldn't do it alone. God, we get rooted in, into groups of people, life groups, whatever it looks like. The Ben, there's men's ministry, getting coffee with others. God, and we would challenge and provoke one another to good deeds. And God, that we would carry the calling you've given us as a church to this region. God, help us to be a vessel you use to reach the lost and build your kingdom. But Holy Spirit, we know that just as, as we saw after Acts 1, when you told them to be witnesses, your Holy Spirit came and filled them, and it gave them boldness, Lord God. I pray that tonight as we sing this song, you would fill us. Holy Spirit, fill us. You're welcome here. God, we ask you to fill us so that we can be an effective witness. We can be an effective vessel. We can be an effective church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we worship.